welcome to the DigiDay podcast. I'm Lara O'Reilly, Senior Correspondent at DigiDay. I now have the intimidating task of stepping into Brian Morrissey's shoes to be your new regular host. I'm sure you'll agree Brian's had a great run over the past decade, not just in working on this podcast, but really helping build DigiDay Media into a formidable media brand and, and company extra brands like Glossy and Modern Retail and just really laying the foundations for those brands to continue to be fantastic for the years to come. And I know that in the short time we've worked together, certainly he's made me a better journalist, so we're all going to miss him uh, a lot here. I can obviously not replace Brian, but please do not go anywhere. Each week, we're going to continue to bring you more exclusive interviews with top caliber guests, and we won't miss a beat on the latest media industry ups and downs. So that brings me to our guest today. It's my pleasure to introduce Jim Vanderhey, CEO and co-founder of Axios. This isn't his first DigiDay podcast rodeo, but it is his first time on the show with me. So Jim, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to do it. Great. How's the week been treating you? It's been one of those relentless news cycles for the last year, but particularly this week. Every week is insane. I don't know if there's any different level of insanity than we're <laughs> accustomed to in this virus era. <laughs> so I, I guess it, we're a good place to start, you know, at the risk of, as I say, a million and one news cycles rotating between this recording and the pod going out in a few days. We're, we're recording this one the day after the first televised presidential debate of 2020 aired. Um, I saw the Axios headline this morning was a chaotic mess of a debate. And I just saw that Dan Primark couldn't actually find anything to riff on from the debates from a business perspective in his pro rata email this morning. So he just threw in a bunch of cat gifts instead. Um, would love your thoughts on how that went and uh, who you thought won. I mean, it was such a hot mess. I don't know that you could discern who won. Um, uh, it was really a, a debate like we've never seen before. And in many ways, I was telling Mike Allen uh, this morning, it reminds me so much of uh, it's like our social media moment, right? It felt so mm -hmm. much like, uh, I often feel if I go down the Twitter rabbit hole or Facebook rabbit hole where you get in there, it's amusing for a second, and then all of a sudden it's infuriating. Next thing you know, you're commenting and sharing, and then 90 minutes later, you realize that your anxiety is through the roof and that you're exponentially dumber than you were when you logged on in the first place. And that's kind of what the debate uh, felt like. I don't know that anybody could have sat back and learned anything uh, from it. Uh, you know, people are dogging on Chris Wallace uh, for his moderation of it. I don't know how you moderate a debate when the president of the United States is going to bulldoze through whatever you say or your opponent uh, says. I don't know that anyone anticipated such an aggressive, nonstop, uh, often kind of rude uh, approach to the debate. And so it, it was kind of fitting for this uh, kind of awful political year. So at Axios, and how do you manage to practice your philosophy of smart brevity with this kind of, I, I guess I'll go with, with what Dan's, uh, his, his kind of metaphor, like this cat fight, these two alley cats screeching over each other. And um, you just hope in the next debate, the, um, the moderator has, you know, a can of spray or something just to be able to chill them out. I mean, what do you, what do you think the next few debates are going to hold? Do you think they'll change tack? And how are you going to um, go about distilling them for your readers? I think that other debates, uh, other than I think the vice presidential one, will probably be more substantive. My guess is the future debates will be a lot like this. I think it's the Trump approach, and it's very hard uh, to combat it if you're Biden or you're the moderator. And when I think about it in the Axios context, it's, 
in some ways, the reason that we started Axios, like I, we did Politico and we had this amazing run at Politico. And one of the things we started to realize by the tail end of it is people are consuming too much politics. Mm-hmm. It really is crushing us. Like we're just not as a species built to be able to stomach this nonstop argument at, where we make almost everything from the substantive to the trivial political. And the hope with Axios and remains the hope is that we can get people to pay attention to what matters, right? Like, like climate change matters. Uh, China as a competitor or a threat matters. Uh, AI, the robot revolution, this idea that technology is moving faster than the human mind, it matters. And I think when we're at our best, we're able to take serious people and orient their minds around those topics. And so my hope is like we do very little coverage or analysis after the next debate if there's nothing substantive to say, you know, and, and to try to move people back uh, to, to sort of the underlying things that matter. And that's what was uh, is so sad about the debate, kind of sad about this entire uh, presidential race is like the world's on fire, folks. There's no denying it. You're looking literally on fire. If you look out west, you look at the economic uh, circumstances. I was just talking to somebody in the airline industry. He was saying 2025 or later is when the airline industry will return to whole. Think about the effects that that's going to have on the economy. We're probably a year from having a, a, a vaccine at scale that uh, allows us to return to normal. We have a warming earth that is at least uh, partly uh, to, call, to blame for uh, these wildfires that we're seeing uh, more ferocious each and every year. We see China basically filling every gap that we leave open uh, as a nation. And they don't have uh, pure intentions when it comes to America and America's standing in the world. Like if I could do one thing with Axios, one thing for anybody would be like to shake them by the collar and say, for crying out loud, quit paying attention to this nonsense and pay attention to what matters. Because if you don't get these things right, the American experiment is in a hell of a lot of trouble. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, I did just want to stick with um, Trump in particular for a second, though. Um, I mean, you know, Axios has only been around for a short time and you've clearly achieved a lot in what's kind of, you know, three, four years, you know, driving the news agenda. You've diversified your business a lot and just building this this kind of recognized brand. And I think kind of if if there was one thing this year that would tie all of those three things together, um, it would probably be Jonathan Swan's. Donald Trump interview on on your HBO weekly show and I mean there were so many reasons it was interesting but it you know it wasn't Jonathan's first interview with Trump it wasn't um Axios's first interview with Trump but it was certainly one of the most memorable interviews with Trump um and I'd love to know just a little bit more about kind of how it came about and frankly why the Trump team agreed to it at this juncture and I mean did you pre- like prepare for the potential for it to just be so kind of wild and news generating and kind of meme worthy. One of the advantages that we have as a publication is that and we have access to a lot of people. I think people take us seriously mm-hmm. and because uh, we take them seriously. We take topics seriously. And so we've interviewed Trump on the record, I don't know, now three or four times and, and, and talked to him in other uh, settings. And so I think the White House, while they don't love our coverage and, and probably sometimes loathe our coverage, I think they uh, believe that we like try to uh, get to uh, the closest approximation of the truth. And the, obviously you're, you're often at war with them on what uh, truth is. And so we knew we had a chance at getting the interview. You know, Swan is in some ways a prototypical 
Axios recruit and reporter in that he takes his job really seriously. He studies. Go back and watch that interview. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't luck. It was years of preparation of knowing everything that the person he covers has said and done and how they respond and how to tease out a different aspect of, of the president. And and he did it respectfully, but he did it, you know, with a, passionately and he did it uh, clinically and he did it effectively. And so, you know, that's all you really can ask of your reporters. It's hard. Like so much of media lit itself on fire you know, over the last three or four years and outrage over Trump. And I, and I get it. The, the things that he says about the media, about truth, I find personally uh, deeply uh, offensive because I believe in media. I believe uh, in, in truth. Uh, but at the same time, we have to cover him. We have to be able to figure out like what he's doing, why is he doing it, and, and try to explain it to people in as clinical a terms as possible. And he makes that job hard, but I think Swan uh, does it better than anyone. And I think he was able to showcase that with a, with a terrific interview. And I think by the end, when we got done counting up the numbers, 150, 160 million people watched all or parts of that interview. I'd argue probably the most watched and talked about presidential interview potentially in the history of presidential interviews, given that you just have this capacity for reach at a global scale now. And, you know, our our job with every interview, whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's a CEO or whether it's a politician or whether it's you know, somebody thinking about science is to really try uh, to be uh, to be clinical, be aggressive and, and be illuminating. Like there's just so much coverage out there and it's getting better now. But to be honest, there's so much garbage out there, like stuff that doesn't tell me anything new or is just meant to get me jacked up or jazzed up. I, I think people hopefully soon and hopefully already are like they want to get uh, back to like some semblance of what matters and what's true. And how do I take a a clearer set of eyes to have a more discerning mind so that I can make good decisions. And it goes back to what I was talking about before. Like when you have this much chaos, this much volatility in every aspect of society, there's tremendous risk and there's tremendous opportunity. The fundamental challenge for this country uh, in media sits at the center of that is to be able to see how can we as a country take advantage of these amazing tools and this amazing amazing opportunity to continue to position America, capitalism, democracy, freedom uh, as the central lights uh, in, in what the future holds, as opposed to things that kind of crumble from within because we fight and we lie and we deceive and we, we, we become tedious and we become trivial as opposed to uh, exploiting the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess you can see how it's easy to be reactive when there's just so much going on, um, particularly as we kind of draw closer to November. So when, whenever we do kind of get a final result, um, what's better for Axios, a, a Trump win or a Biden win? Are we past this idea of a, of a Trump bump now? I mean, there's a little bit of a myth that uh, is tethered to a reality that I don't think exists anymore. And that myth is, is that uh, like media companies do well with scale. Look at the yeah. companies that did scale. They're almost all out of business or they're going out of business. Scale for scale's sake is almost meaningless unless you can convert it into something of value. Uh, I think what you're seeing replace that is like people, companies that are doing serious journalism have a real uh, business model behind them. Whether it's you see the Atlantic having success, you see the athletic and sports having success, you see us having success. You see the New York Times having success, Wall Street Journal having success. None of us are tethered to, are we, are we going to be made or broken by whether Trump wins or loses? And so I don't 
in terms of the business model, I have no clue which one would, would do better. I don't even think it makes a difference because I think smart people turn to us for content across uh, many different verticals and they, are, they need news and information they can trust regardless of who holds power. My view is like regardless of who wins, I really hope and pray that people consume less of the political part and start paying more attention to AI and China and climate and these other topics that I think are epic. They are transformational. They are going to do more to explain what this country, this world, uh, this culture looks like 10 years from now than who's uh, necessarily sitting in office. And this is an interesting thing, and and you guys uh, talk a lot about this, is People, media and in, in politics used to kind of sit separately, right? And now you can't, they're smushed together. Like you can't understand politics without understanding what's happening in media and what's happening in technology, mainly on the, on the social uh, platforms, you know? So that means that for even for politics to get normal again, we've got to have a healthy media. And then we're going to have to have some kind of healthy rules, restrictions, habits, around what's happening on social media where the vast majority of people are getting the vast majority of their information. Huge challenge. It's a regulatory challenge. It's a social challenge. It is a a corporate uh, challenge. And we haven't done a very good job as a society of fixing this one, even though we've known for some time that it's a growing uh, problem. And so if you're paying attention to whatever the weird thing or weird tweet of the day is, you're not paying attention to fundamental reforms that could have an appreciable effect on things that could make a real uh, difference. And and so to me, like, I just hope somehow uh, we can get more and more people to pay attention to those topics, that they can return to a uh, sort of an agreement that there's some truth, there's some set of facts that we can operate from so you can solve what are really complex problems that grow more complex because of the speed of change that is powered uh, by technology. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Less of the distractions, I think, would be would be better for all of us. Um, so I was looking back. I think the last time you were on this podcast was in 2018. So I wanted to get a little bit of a of a status update as to where Axios, uh, sorry, Axios currently is as a business. So um, you launched in 2017. You've raised is it, is it around 30 million to date, just under. I, I think it's right around uh, a little more than 30 million, I think uh, close to 40 million total. And we haven't touched the vast majority of that. Okay. Um, and there was a report from Peter Kafka and Ted Schleifer at um, Rico back in December saying that you were looking to raise, um, I believe, another 20 million. So would, would that be another 20 million on top of that 40 or, or has that already happened? Is that- no, no. We raised, we raised another round of about 20 about a year ago. Okay. Okay. So not the. This was December 2019. This was the Glaybrook Capital round. Um, I haven't seen an announcement yet, but um, is, is is that what we're both talking about? We're both on the same lines. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Um, great stuff. And then, so where's your revenue at? I, I saw just this morning the Wall Street Journal reported you're on track for around 58 million this year, which, if I'm right, is kind of just double over where you were from from 2018 and perhaps about 30% from last year. And I haven't seen them. Um, I haven't seen the Lucas at the wall street journal print a correction yet. So I'm assuming that's all along the right lines. I would say uh, it's, yeah, it's in the, definitely in the ballpark. My guess is we'll be a little bit above uh, the $58 million number uh, that they used. Uh, and our growth will be about 30 to 35% this year. And we'll be, uh, Profitable, not hugely mm-hmm. profitable, but profitable, which will be three years in a row of 
a little bit of profit, uh, basically break even or a little bit of profit. Okay. The reason that, and usually I wouldn't share that, uh, and the reason I'm more comfortable talking about it is I'm suddenly becoming an, I mean, I've been a pessimist about a lot of media for a long time. What we <laughs> are seeing is a, a couple of trends that are really positive for high quality media companies. Number one, uh, Facebook and Google that used to be massive threats and obviously were massive threats to so much of media. I don't think they work against us anymore. I think we benefit tremendously and net positive from both in terms of the amount of audience that you can accrue, the amount uh, there, are, there are big advertisers with a lot of the uh, media companies, obviously big targets of of, of coverage uh, for media companies. And so, well, well, that was a threat before. I think it's now a net asset for high quality uh, media companies. So what what changed? I'm I'm interested. They they've they've always been the adversaries of the of the media business, um, or at least they have. That's been the the kind of prevailing wisdom for the last few years. So what changed? I think the big thing that changed is if you look at the the, the advertising space that we're in, which is if you want to call it corporate image or corporate uh, social responsibility type advertising, which is ads from companies about something other than selling a product. It's what do we stand for? What are we trying to do uh, as a company as a corporate? A citizen. That's a boom market. And if you're one of those advertisers, you want to be in a safe, clean, well-lit place where you know you're read by people who care. And there aren't that many places to go. And I think we're uh, hopefully at the top of that list when those companies are thinking about advertising. So that market has turned out to be a lot bigger uh, than we had uh, anticipated. And I think a lot of the, the stuff that needed to get cleaned out is getting cleaned out. There's just so much garbage before, just like scale for scale's sake and wild experiments that kind of looked cool or sounded fun, but they weren't actually like high quality content. There's now I think a, a bigger demand for high quality uh, content. And all those things have conspired. Uh, I'd say even on top of that, the other thing that's happened is you see, uh, you see it with our HBO show where you have now, you know, we can name the number, whether Netflix, Apple, Amazon, HBO, Peacock, uh, you name it. Uh, they're all in need of high quality content and there aren't that many great content producers in the in the serious news space. And so that's opened up an opportunity uh, for companies like ours. And so I'm just a lot more bullish in the high quality media space as long as you're tethered from day one to a real business model. And so obviously we've had a good year. I think by uh, by any standards, a very good year. I think the fact that we've had the coronavirus, a great year. Like I wasn't bullshitting when I said in March, when, 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 when the COVID hit, I sat there and looked at projections and I assumed, we assumed as a company, we could be down 40%. We thought the ad market was going to collapse. Events would die. And we even applied for the PPP. We were approved for, I think we have, you know, $4.8 million almost instantly within weeks started to see that things were uh, turning around or had a decent chance of turning around, gave back that money. And it's uh, grown like wildfire since then. We've seen new advertisers come into the space, old advertisers spending uh, even more. So now we're going to do better even amid the virus than we thought we would do before it. And I'm just, I feel blessed that that's happening. I feel thankful. I, I feel uh, validated for the team. I feel the team has just risen and done kind of heroic things and what are, by most measures, often very terrible uh, circumstances. And so I do think that we're one of the shining lights that this can work. We're not the only one. I think there's a couple of companies out there doing some really nice uh, work and some nice uh, innovation. And I like it because it's validating what, what you care about, what I care about, which is mm -hmm. smart journalism that you can trust. Smart journalism that you can trust. There's nothing better. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um 
And I guess, I mean, we spoke about this a little bit earlier and you were, and you were just mentioning um, the HBO series too. I'm, I'm guessing one of the reasons that you weren't as exposed to coronavirus as some of the other, um, as some other p media publications and kind of advertising businesses out there is, is you have quite a, a diversified um, stream of revenue. Can, can you just kind of describe, because as, as I say, it's been a couple of years since you were on, um, like how your revenue is split. You sell kind of sponsorship for your newsletters, you have events, you have this HBO series. Can you give me a sense of kind of how the pie is sliced and, and what the biggest piece is? Yeah. So the biggest piece by far is advertising and advertising breaks down into sponsorship of newsletters, uh, ads uh, in uh, on our site, on our mobile app, uh, sponsorship of events. We, I think we were one of the first, maybe the first to really uh, pivot effectively into the virtual space. We've been doing three a week now since March and we've been sold out and I think we're sold out for the rest of the year. So we were able to get into that space effectively, quickly, and uh, in a way that's been uh, financially beneficial uh, to the company. Uh, we have the HBO show, which is a, which is a nice uh, revenue line, an amazing partnership with a company that brings to the table something that we just don't have, which is amazing filmmaking and uh, cinematic skills and moves that we don't have, and then distribution uh, that's above and beyond uh, what we can do. And then we have a product uh, that we call HQ uh, that we've been working in beta on, which essentially allows companies or individuals to be able to communicate the way that we communicate with our readers. We call it smart brevity, uh, this sort of screen-by-screen uh, -screen way of telling people what's new uh, and why it matters. And, and that business line will be, you know, it's, it's, it's in beta, but we'll do more than a million bucks this year with that. And that's going to be a fast-growing mm -hmm. uh, line of business. And so you're right, we do have some uh, diversity but to our revenue, I think over time we'll add even more diversity to it. But it all sits on top of that core. Like you think about your events, you think about a show, you think about a newsletter that somebody wants to read and then somebody wants to sponsor. If it's if you're not delivering the goods, you don't have anything. You've got nothing. If I can't if I can't produce something because I have great journalists that addict you, that make you feel like you have to read it to be able to do your job or be a knowing citizen the whole thing would fall down. And that's what's awesome because then, because that's true, you have perfect synergy. You have this awesome incentive to produce more high quality content and the more high quality content you produce, the more you can build businesses around it. And I like that. That, that makes mm -hmm. me feel good as, a, a, as one of the business owners. And then to have an entire team that's dedicated to that. And by the way, if you said why... Of all the things we've talked about, why is Axios uh, successful? Uh, it is more than anything. And I think anybody who comes to work for us, and I'd say even people who leave after working us would say, it's the magic of our culture. Like there's something magical about our people. They're just smart as shit. They care. They care so much about getting people uh, smarter, uh, faster. Uh, they're ambitious. But they all, to a person, like there's never, we have no mischief. We have no backbiting. There's almost never tension. People like they work hard and they play to win, but they, they 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 genuinely like each other. And when you have that, especially in the newsroom, it, it's like a magic you want to bottle because it it, it it's a, it's a contagious internally. But you can almost feel it in the self confidence, and joy uh, in how people write, and then what you read mm -hmm. or what you see. And I think it's all those things together that I, I think have given us uh, a good year. Yeah, I think newsletters kind of help there as well. They just help bring out. Um... A, a personality. Um, how do you maintain that as you as you grow, though? I, I imagine 
you know, the editors at, at the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post will say similar things about their, their journalists. But how do you kind of maintain that? Um, I, I don't, I don't want to say scrappier side, but you know what I mean? Just the, I guess the camaraderie um, that can come with being perhaps a little bit smaller and having to all pitch in on things together. It requires work, right? It requires like constant, like we get the whole staff together in better times, at least no matter where you live, we fly you in four times a year, three times a year to make sure that we're all together and spend a couple of days like talking about strategy. Uh, every Sunday, I write my version of Mike Allen's AM for the staff and I tell anybody Every single thing that we're doing other than what people make or why people leave. And we do that out of respect for the individual. Uh, every Monday we sit before our staff and you can ask us any question anonymously, no matter how rude or personal or in the weeds it is. And we'll answer it forthrightly. And those things. And by the way, every single person who works for us is a shareholder. And so what you're trying to do is create. A, a team-like atmosphere where people feel like they're in it together, where they feel like you care about them. Small things, right? So one of the things we did right at the beginning of coronavirus, even when things looked like they could be a little bleak uh, for us, we, we put aside $100,000 and said, here's $100,000. If you have any issue at home, any issue with your family, no questions asked, you can apply for money. We trust you. And we're just going to give it to you. Take care of the problem. We want to alleviate at least a little bit of the stress on you. And that's like not huge, right? It's a small amount of money in the scheme of things. But I think it showed the heart of the company. And I think we do stuff like that all the time, all the time. We don't people now are, you know, after uh, what happened after the, uh, the the murder of George Floyd, there's all this talk internally. We've got to do you know more on diversity and inclusion. We've been doing that for four years. We have those conversations forthrightly on a regular basis. Like nobody feels shy or ashamed or nervous about having real conversation. And this all might seem like soft and, and fuzzy, but it actually isn't because it goes to you. Then how do I create, how do we create an atmosphere where people want to come and want to stay because we're really good talent magnets We and you want to um, keep your people here. I don't want Swan to go work for the New York times. I don't want Sarah Fisher uh, to go work for uh, the Washington post. I don't want Dan Primack to ever go anywhere uh, and go down the list. Like uh, all of our, star uh reporters editors and talent like i want them here and i want them feeling like they're 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 doing something that's bigger than themselves and i think we're doing that and i think that is uh uh it makes my job a hell of a lot more fun mm. we're going to take a quick break i wanted to ask you actually about um you know in media we love to talk about the, the great unbundling and then a, a few li years later we talk about the great rebundling again and it kind of continues back and forth kind of um, you know, ad finitum, depending on whatever platform we're talking about. And I guess right now in vogue are things like Substack and Ghost and Tiny Letter. And we've seen journalists like, you know, Casey Newton at The Verge and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Andrew Sullivan from and, and Emily Atkin and, and so many others, you know, leave their well-established news organizations and, and go at it alone. And like you were just saying, so many of your journalists are, are brand names in their own right with their own big kind of individual followers. I saw you mentioned Sarah Fisher. I saw she's just hit the, the 100,000 subscriber mark, which is no mean feat when you're writing about media. <laughs> you know, it's not accessible to everybody. Um, yeah. and, I, and I just guess, I think all those things you were saying, does that kind of feed into the thought that um, they're just going to be less likely to unbundle themselves from Axios, um, even though they have all these technologies that make it very easily like easy for them to do i mean does does that kind of concern you <laughs> in, in any way um and you know 
why is life better for them with with axios versus going over and taking some big check from substack it doesn't concern me uh mainly because i think the the trappings of working for a place like axios are really uh they're, they're nice right like the ability to be able to write and have something uh remain public and be on the site in addition to your newsletter the ability to have colleagues and editors to knock around uh, new ideas, the idea of the benefits that come with working, you know, just like the, the health and financial benefits that come with working with an institution. So I don't I can't imagine any of our people leaving and then wanting to go to Substack. And now I say this and probably by the time this thing airs, maybe we'll even do that. but I don't I don't think that that would happen. And that's not the dog uh, Substack. They have a very interesting model. I think they've attracted a, a, a crop of very interesting writers, some of whom are having a lot of success on that platform. I guess the question I would have for Substack uh, is one that I wrestle with, that we wrestle with a lot, which is it's really hard to find people who want to write regularly a newsletter that is so attractive to a group of people that they're going to read it every day and then they're going to pay for it on a regular basis. And yes, there's definitely, there's cases where you have Ben Thompson's who are hugely uh, successful, but then the drop off is, is pretty big. And so mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can scale that uh, beyond a, a sort of a core of 10 or 12 uh, really well-known writers. If they can, it'll be a really great uh, company. And for us, it's always going to be about people who have subject matter expertise in the topics that we care about us giving them a platform where they can be on a TV show, they can be on a podcast, they can be in a newsletter, they can be on a site. That's kind of an attractive uh, package, mm -hmm. I think, for a, for a journalist. I think what Substack is getting right and what you're seeing with, with some Casey Newton and others is like the, the power of the brand. This is something we noticed at, at Politico a long time ago, that individual journalists who are really good like if you go back 15 years ago, the difference in pay between a really good journalist and a mediocre journalist might have been 20 percent. Like what other market would that happen where you might have the best of the best making essentially what the what, what a mediocre person in your field uh, is making? And that makes no economic sense. It doesn't make any market sense. And so what you are seeing is that people who have a real gift who are, let's say, in the upper five percentile of performers uh, as newsletter writers, as uh, reporting talent, that they're learning how to be able to make more money, be able to market themselves, be able to see that they have more value than maybe the old line institutions assigned to them. That's great. I, I think that injects a little bit of competition, uh, maybe an additional uh, incentive, because I'm hungry for really good content that I can trust from people who have passion and subject matter expertise. Still hard to find. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you have it, Give us a call. Like we're always looking for people who have that mix of like you have expertise in something, you can deliver the goods on a regular basis, and you're passionate about getting people smarter faster. If you're if you do that, uh, like that's our ideal uh, type of hire. Mm -hmm. We've only got a little bit of time left, but I want to rattle through um, a kind of a few future facing things. I I wanted to know what your thinking is at the moment on subscriptions. I know you've spoken before about thinking about this kind of Politico pro type, high dollar value niche paid product. Is that still on the cards? I think it is. I mean, I, I, you know, I've said from the beginning, like I thought that we would do it much earlier. To be honest, I thought we would do it earlier out of necessity because we had 
questions about how big this ad market could be. When we got in, we thought, oh, you know, we could see a very clear path to 40 or $50 million. Now we see a very clear path to well over $100, $150 million in this space. And so as a, as a, uh, as a business leadership team, what you want to do is get as much of that money as possible. Keep the product free as long as you can. Grow your relationship with as big an audience as possible. Then build into that and on top of that additive products that people will pay for. I, I remain to this day a big believer in that political pro model. Roy Schwartz, myself, when we were there, we were sort of the, we were the, the architects of that. A lot of skepticism back then. It's interesting because it's a, a huge part of the political model now. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there was a real debate internally about whether or not to do it. And, and why it was smart and why it continues to be smart is if you can deliver content that people need really to do their job at a really high level, you can monetize that. And so I'd say at some point I could see us stacking that uh, into the ecosystem. I don't think we'll do it in the next year or two because we're seeing so much good growth on the free side, on the advertising side, and HQ, which is a, a form of a subscription mm -hmm. product. Uh, the early signs on that are, are really, really good. And that could be a massive business that sits side by side with Axios. And so uh, might, it's a long way of saying, yes, we will get to it <laughs> at some point, but uh, I don't think we have to get to it right now. Okay. Um, and then next year you're launching Axios Local. So some daily early morning newsletters for, um, you're doing four towns at first Denver and uh, Minneapolis, Tampa. And uh, what's, what's the other one? Uh, we're doing Des Moines, Tampa, uh, Minneapolis and Denver. Des Moines, that's it. Um, so again, is that, could that be a paid for product? Do you see that as being a free one? And, and what's the thinking there? Uh, we see it as being free uh, and our belief, uh, uh, if we can spend a second on this, like here's our theory on local. Local is maybe the hardest puzzle to solve, maybe an impossible puzzle to solve. But if you're going to solve it, our belief has always been you would you would do it kind of the way that we started Axios, a little bit of how we started uh, uh, Politico and kind of like even how Morning Brew uh, got going, which is get a flagship newsletter, lock in an audience, doesn't have a ton of cost. We already have the distribution a lot of our audience overlaps in those cities anyways. Put it all into the journalism. Start to build a list. We know we can monetize that through advertising. And then grow the size of the staff as you grow the list and the revenue. That way you're not building something with a lot of cost and praying to God that you figure out a business model. You have a business model from day one. And so our experiment is let's go into these four cities. Let's try to be essential overnight. Let's encourage people to read other local media. Well, tell them to subscribe. Like we think this is like there's always going to be lots of players in a market. A healthy market has multiple players. And then if we're right, then you could scale this anywhere. And that's why we're doing it. We're not just doing it because we're interested in four cities. We're interested to see within a year, does this work? And if it works, can we scale the hell out of it and go into every city of any size and be able to help people get smart about the topics that matter and then use that to build journalism on top of it and keep all of the costs that usually sinks local media companies. We don't need a building. We don't need the technology. We already got that. We don't need delivery people. We've got distribution via newsletters. We've got copy editing. We've got HR. All that stuff's taken care of. So the only cost is journalism. And if we can nail this, this would be awesome. It would be one of the things that me as a, a journalist, us collectively as people who care about journalism, like what an awesome legacy. And it might not work. Like you take risks all the time. I, I think it will work, but it might not work. But we're going to give it our damnedest try. So that's local. What about international? 
Not in the short term, at least not on the on the current uh, trajectory. I think there's so much that we have to do. Uh, we really try to stay focused as a company. Like obviously, we have different revenue streams, but fundamentally, the topics that we care about are topics that we think will shape the next five to ten years. Hire subject matter experts. Focus on America first. Now focus on uh, the key and emerging cities, and then more cities. And if we get that model right and you have the technology, obviously, I think this could be scalable at, at a global uh, at, with a global dimensions, but not right now. Like right now, we have to just focus on doing what we're doing, I think, very well, keep doing it better, uh, do it for more people. And then only once we feel like we've solidified uh, the model here and that we feel like it's easily scalable elsewhere, would we then take it elsewhere? Sure. Um, so I want to talk more more broadly now, just to finish. Um, back when you were launching, you were kind of often quoted as saying, "Media is broken," and I, and I you know, I get it. That was the you know, you were you were the antidote. But um, I, I wanted to get a sense of whether you feel like now, looking forward to twenty twenty one. I mean, it's it's been a crazy time um, for everyone, not just media. But are there reasons to be cheerful? Any sign of? Um, like what's that Japanese word when you can like fix broken pottery with with gold? Like, do do you feel like um, you know media's still broken in twenty twenty? Can you can the pieces be put back together again <laughs> in twenty twenty one, or have we still got a few kind of tough years ahead? That's an interesting way to look at it. And uh, as you say it, uh, where my mind goes is, I think media is getting fixed. It's the damn system that now feels broken. So in some ways, uh, like we collectively have started to repair media. And what I mean repair is make it a better user experience, get more high quality content out of there, wash away the commodity stuff, wash away the tricks and clicks stuff. That's happening in a very positive way and feel very good about that. So the media trajectory in general, I feel pretty good about. The problem is, is that a lot of the pipes that we sit on, or at least a lot of the pipes that end up distributing our content either directly or uh, often indirectly and, and not always uh, accurately, are what people are doing with that on the social platforms. And that is broken. That is broken uh, fundamentally. And, 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 and it's broken in a way that has led to a massive erosion of truth. If you said, Jim, you're on true serum. What scares the shit out of you? What scares me are the number of smart people in my life who believe stuff that is not true. People that are well-educated, that read, that think, and they don't believe truth because they spend so much time with their head inside the Facebook machine or their mind locked on Twitter or just getting more partisan stuff shot into their mind. That is hugely problematic. And I do believe that serious high quality media is going to be one of the big solutions. It's one of the reasons that we've had such a thriving democracy, even if it's messy and ugly and flawed, it's still the best thing out there. And one of the reasons has been a free press that most people trust most of the time. We've got to get back to that. We got to get back to that. My big fear is, is post-election, let's say Biden wins and, and, and basically you have one ecosystem over here and then there's a, a Trump uh, media ecosystem, which has already been born on Facebook and born on social media and born through podcasts, sits in a different world where we just don't believe anything that each other's eyes are seeing. That is a problem. That is a problem. And it is a growing problem. 
a growing problem. And I don't know what the solution is. I think it's going to require, uh, I think, some regulation of the tech platforms. I think it's going to require, to be honest, individuals to, to snap out of it. Stop, <laughs> stop sharing and reading goofy stuff that you know not to be true. If you don't know if it's true, don't share it. Go read a book. Go play with your kids. Go mow the lawn. Get the hell off of social media for a little while and try to get back to this idea that, yes, you can have fun with politics. And, yes, we can have our own views. And, yes, we can still share uh, funny things. But they can't be so definitional to our lives. The thing that, I guess, bothers me most about media, that while the quality of the content is, I think, higher today than it was four or five years ago, I don't love how partisan a lot of reporters at big institutions have become. And I understand it, that, that Trump's attacks on us are infuriating. But letting people know you're liberal or letting people know you hate uh, one group of people or another, I don't think it helps us persuade the persuadables. And we've got to figure out a way to persuade the persuadables. There's, there is a chunk. And I was just telling my kids this the other day. They, they, they look around, they're like, the whole world's lost its mind. I say, yeah, it has, but do this. Think about the 500 people in your life that you know, that you touch in some way on a yearly basis. How many of them are normal? How many of them obsess about politics? Most people are normal. Most people work hard. Most people volunteer. Most people are good to you. Most people are going to help you out when you're in a jam. It's so distorting when you sit on social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, and you think that's the world. That's not the world. But somehow that virtual world feels like the real world. And that real world, like the, where the humanity still exists, that's the thing that we have to pull out. We have to pull back. I wish I had a magic wand uh, to do that. I wish I had a, a clever solution for it. I, I do think, and I hope in a tiny way, uh, Axios uh, can be part of it. It's why I, I work more than a person probably uh, should work, because like we really, really believe in this. And I'd say the 200 people uh, that uh, I work alongside feel the exact same way. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting time to be covering the media beat, for sure. That's an understatement. Um, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, that was great. That was really fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Digi Day podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. As always, please rate and share this episode if you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.